You're listening to What Mad Universe on the Greenlit Podcast Network. Check out all our shows at greenlitpodcast.com. Content warning. Racism, war crimes, cruelty to animals, phrenology, mental domination, and big ol' bugs. Action, excitement, horror, romance, thrills and chills, swords and sorcery, rockets and ray guns, a dizzying canopy of the strange and impossible from the darkest depths of the human imagination. What mad universe encompasses such tales as these? Join us as we bear witness to the sweeping sprawl of all the history that never was and all the futures that could yet be. It's adventure as you like it on What What Mad Universe. the eyes came on with a strange slowness, and as they came they moved from side to side as if their owner walked uneven. Nothing could have exceeded the horror with which I awaited their approach, except my incapacity to escape them. Not for an instant did my glance pass from them. I could not have shut my eyes for all the gold the world contains, so as they came closer I had to look right down to what seemed to be almost at the level of my feet. At last they reached my feet. They never paused. On a sudden I felt something on my boot, and with a sense of shrinking horror and nausea, rendering me momentarily more helpless, I realized that the creature was beginning to ascend my legs, to climb my body. Even then, what it was I could not tell. It mounted me, apparently, with as much ease as if I had been horizontal instead of perpendicular. It was as though it were some gigantic spider, a spider of nightmares, a monstrous conception of some dreadful vision. It pressed lightly against my clothing with what might for all the world have been spider's legs. It was an amazing host of them. I felt the pressure of each separate one. They embraced me softly, stickily, as if the creature glued and unglued them each time it moved. The Beetle, A Mystery, 1897 by Richard Marsh. Hello, welcome to What Mad Universe. I'm Philip Rice, and with me as always is Adam Prosser. Hello. Hi, so uh, this is the first... Real uh, test of our new format, in which one of us has read the book and the other has not. Uh, we, we sort of uh, did a collection of short stories where it was sort of... Back and forth, yeah. Roughly, yeah, yeah, back and forth last time. But uh, this this is our first real test of this. Uh, so forgive us if we're a little shaky here, but I, I, think, uh, I think it'll be a, a good method going forward. Uh, mm-hmm. Today we're discussing uh, The Beetle by Richard Marsh, which is a, uh, well, first of all, uh, do you know anything about this? This is a fairly obscure one. So, Literally, the only thing I know about it is that it was, it came out the same year of, as Dracula and it was more popular than Dracula at the time. Yes, um, it technically predated Dracula by a little bit because it was serialized before it was uh, published as a book was serialized in a popular magazine, Answers, which seemed to have been um, sort of marketed towards uh, lower-income uh, people. And then it, uh, and it was originally published as uh, the, the serialized version was called 
The Peril of Paul Lessingham, The Story of a Haunted Man, which is <laughs> not a very good title. Yeah. Um, Paul Lessingham? Wow! <laughs> um, I mean, he has a character in the book, but <laughs> it would yeah, be weird no. if he wasn't. But um, right. yeah, uh, and then it was later published in novel form uh, as The Beetle. Uh, by a religious publishing house called Skeffington. And I, I don't know why it doesn't really have religious themes at all, but huh. I don't know. Was maybe, this maybe a case was... of, uh, was this a, an Ed Wood situation? Yeah, where yeah, they needed, maybe. They wanted to make uh, religious stuff and first they had to have a hit. <laughs> yeah, well, uh, this was a hit. Um, uh, to it, we, we don't have a clear idea of exact sales numbers and stuff, but... Um, um, I found this uh, uh, fact. In 1913, The Beatle was on its 15th publication, uh, its uh, 15th um, uh, yeah. uh, issue. So print, it did, print run. Yeah, print run. Thank you. Uh, Dracula was only on its 10th. Hmm. So, you know, not, not like hugely outselling Dracula, but it did outsell Dracula. But um, uh, it's... Uh, slowly lost in popularity and it was out of print by the 60s i believe and only came back in, in the 80s <laughs> so um yeah it didn't have the staying power and obviously it's it's fairly obscure now um uh part of it from a few um essays i read suggested because it doesn't have the same sort of because dracula can be sexy he's not necessarily but like you can play that aspect up and this is more like you know an ugly old person who turns into a beetle, you know, it's hmm. doesn't have the same sort of, um, I, I don't know that that could that, be, that, it. well, it doesn't have sex appeal, but yeah. I mean, I'd argue a lot of horror stories don't have sex appeal either. Yeah. I mean, Frankenstein's not particularly sexy. Um, uh, you know, it, it's, it, it's always hard to say why something's going to become a huge hit and why something's going to, Oh, and this was a huge hit, but like taper off at where yeah. something remains immortal. Yeah, I got. I've got to assume uh, the thing about Dracula is that it was a play. It was adapted into a very popular play, and I maybe this that's was also the... a, this was also adapted into a play, and there was actually a silent movie though it's been lost. Um, mm. So it was like adapted mm. early on a couple times, but uh, yeah, it mm. just didn't stay. Well, I guess maybe just the play was such a big success and worked so well, and and it was the basis for the movie. Like yep. Uh, most versions of Dracula are more based on the play than the actual book. Um, yeah. So that may be the factor that sort of kept it alive, that bridged it into the uh, the modern era, I guess. I don't yeah. Know. Um, so uh, this is, um, like Dracula, it's a horror story. Um, and it's also told in uh, uh, epistolary uh, fashion. So uh, letters and documents from from characters within, within the story. Um. Uh, so I guess uh, I, I can run through the plot or, or what basically what it's about, right? Uh, yes, I'm guessing there's a beetle. <laughs> yes. Um, so it starts off um, uh, with a character named Robert Holt, who is a, um, uh, a clerk uh, who's you know from the middle classes, but he's down on his luck and he's um, trying to, like he's completely destitute and he's planning on trying to get into a poor house but they won't let him in and he so he just sort of um he you know they say they're full and they won't let him in but he gets a suggestion from from somebody there to um uh go to another area and uh he ends up 
uh, through circumstances, uh, thinking there's an empty house that he, he's going to break into in, in like a, a slum area of London. It's set in London. Um, and uh, once in there, there's this, this horrible old man in there, um, sort of vaguely, well, well foreign and um, um, unclear on whether it's uh, male or female, at least from first glance. Uh, most most characters settle on it being male, though we learn later um, she, she's a woman, sort of. Um, and uh, he falls under a, a hypnotic trance, and he feels this creature walking up him, and it's a it's a large beetle, like a, the size of a dog or something. Um, uh, and uh, he gets hypnotized and is... Uh, ordered to break into the home of a, uh, a prominent politician named Paul Lessingham, uh, who is, uh, well, we'll discuss him later. Uh, ordered, oh, sorry, he's, he's ordered by the old weird man yeah, that he yeah, encounters. Yeah, okay. yeah. Or a woman. Um, um, yeah, okay. uh, who does not get a name. Huh. Uh, uh, goes by uh, Mohammed El-Kir uh, at some points, but that it's, Text makes clear that is not that is not this person's real name. Uh, maybe we'll call it the Beetle. I don't know. She she turns into a Beetle. Okay. Like her and the Beetle are the same entity. Um, her name is Beetle. <laughs> um, so uh, he's ordered to break into the home of a prominent up and coming politician named Paul Lessingham and steal some personal papers. And uh, he's told if he comes into he runs into Paul Essingham, just say, The Beetle, and Paul Essingham will uh, back off. Um, so Robert Holt, quite against his will, um, uh, goes to, uh, does this, and that happens. Um, Paul Essingham is, uh, when he hears uh, Holt say, The Beetle, um, it completely freaks him out and puts him off guard, and... Um, Robert Holt is able to to run away. Uh, he changed his name from McCartney. And he doesn't want to be part of that <laughs> life anymore. Yeah. Um, uh, there's going to be lots of Beatles jokes. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Maybe that's one reason it. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Actually, that's a good point. Um. So um, then we sort of uh uh he any uh Robert Holt on the way out runs into an old man who, or into a, an, a man outside, not an old man, a young man, um, who seems sarcastic about a guy breaking into an MP's house. Um, um, anyway, we, we then switch to sort of the point of view of that man, who is Sidney Atherton, who's a, a real piece of work. He's, he's allegedly one of the book's heroes, but uh, I do not like this guy. <laughs> okay. Um, He's he's a he's a sarcastic jerk a lot of the times, and uh, he's a scientist who's working on um, uh, well various things. But the the main thing when he's uh, working on when he's when we start in the book is uh, uh, chemical weapons. Oh, good. Um, he's developing something he calls uh, Atherton's magic vapor, uh, which um, he brags about he you know refers to it as legal murder um that well, uh, that's what vape that's what vaping is generally <laughs> uh but uh and he plans you know 
to to sell it to the to the British government and and they'd be able to you know kill our whole armies in in seconds and, you know World War One stuff but this right. is predicting yeah. it quite quite early so I guess that was already on people's radar before they right. long before yeah. they developed it but it's yeah. it's horrifying that this this alleged hero is developing this stuff like that's yeah. That's uh, <laughs> it was science and therefore good is possibly what people were thinking. I get well. I think yeah. I think Atherton's supposed to come across as a bit of a jerk because he's sort of um, uh, grouchy and and sarcastic and and makes a lot of snide remarks and stuff. But it's still okay. I don't know. That's yeah. like a moral. <laughs> yeah, it's beyond well. the pale a little. Well, more than a little bit, and it, it gets yeah. kind of worse at, at certain points. Anyway, you almost want to give people a, a break a hundred years ago because they didn't know what was going to start happening with this. <laughs> that this is before the really horrible, you know, war-related. Uh, Still, like he, he sort of talks about what it can do, and like you know, sort of describes what happened. They just don't seem to get how horrible that is. Yeah, well, yeah, compared um, to make the extrapolation. Anyway, so so we get a bunch of um, uh, like Dracula goes into sort of uh, weird rom com stuff um, with um, you know a relationship drama. So he's in love with Marjorie Linden. Marjorie Linden is engaged to Paul Lessingham, who is a um, young up and like I said, a young up and coming politician. He seems to be. Um, they don't really describe exactly what his positions are, but he seems to be for social causes. Helping the poor, um, he's referred to as a radical and sort of um, contrasted with uh, Marjorie Linden's father, who's described as an old Tory who's sort of stuck okay. in his ways. And so seems to be some some degree of left wing, though we're we're not quite uh, given a full thing into exactly what his uh, beliefs or policies are. Um, so uh, it's hard to say, you know. Yeah, like I said, exactly what political stripe he's. But he, he's he's a wealthy man. He you know he has servants and stuff, so he can't be that right. radical, probably. Well, you know there were there were like well-off uh, rich people who fought for like very left-wing causes and. Yeah, the day, fair, I but I, I you, know. you know he seems very establishment in some ways. I don't know. Right. They want, they want, probably he wants the, you know, the, the general, they, I mean, to this day, you see this a lot. It's like, well, this person's good. We'll vaguely talk about the social causes they support, but without getting too deep into it, because then you start alienating people with specifics, yeah, right? That, that's, so, that's, yeah, that's probably what's yeah. going on. Um, anyway, so, uh, um, uh, Paul Essingham, or, sorry, um, Atherton, the scientist, um, uh, is in love with Marjorie Linton, Linton, Linton sorry, Linden, um, and uh, sh but she's engaged to Paul Essingham, and uh, Atherton's really jealous about it. There's there's another MP who's also um, in love with Marjorie Linden, um, so uh, him and Cindy Sydney get drunk together, and uh, Sydney picks up a cat that was outside Paul Lessingham Lessingham's house, and sort of put all his anger against Paul Lessingham onto this cat and decide to show off his magic vapor to this other MP. Um, the cat gets away, but like Sydney was going to kill this cat. Jeez. 
like put well, him you know, into that's a chamber. How you endear its character to the audience is have yeah. him kill a cute animal in the early. Yeah, days. it's it's wild. Like I don't know what what Marsh was thinking with this. Yeah. <laughs> like I I genuinely don't know what we're supposed to make of this because he's hmm. he's sort of a hero, the the one of the heroes of the book. So hmm. I don't know. Like that's that and you know developing chemical weapons in the first place is hmm. uh yeah <laughs> I do not like well, this maybe character. He's, Maybe he's kind of an anti-hero. Maybe it's a yeah, you, know, you need I a guess. bad guy to beat the better, worse evils kind of thing. You know. Yeah. Um, so uh, the beetle uh, in in human form uh, shows up to his house in um, um, dressed in, in the manner of an Arab, um, and uh, yeah, there, there's a bit of um, uh, Atherton looking at this this person and. Um, yeah, this person is has a very ugly face, uh, sort of blubbery lips, no chin, uh, completely bereft of hair, um, sallow yellow skin. So you know, sort of piling on the the, the ugly stereotypes. Um, Atherton uh, theorizes on the uh, racial makeup of this person, uh, and it gets really. Uh, Uncomfortable. <laughs> well, I was going to say specifically, like it really. A lot of phrenology in this. Um, oh God! Like, um, let's see. Um, hardly an Arab. He was not a fellow. He was not, unless I erred, a Mohammedan at all. Uh, Mohammedan at all. There was something about him which was uh, distinctly non-Muslimen, Muslimanic. Uh, so far as anyway. Um, yeah, Muslimen being the old-timey phrase for Muslim. Yeah. Yeah. He was not a flattering example of his race, whatever his race may be. You know, he's got a big nose. and um, So, yeah, uh, uh, the, the beetle tries to hypnotize him but fails because uh, he's, you know, he says he's always been sort of immune to mesmerism and stuff. Um, um, the beetle wants to make a, a deal with um, uh, with Sydney to take out uh, uh, Lessingham. Um, and, uh, but uh, Sydney, to, to his credit, does not want to... Uh, well, he, he's tempted for a bit, but he does not want to uh, end up killing this guy because they're both in love with the same person. Uh, so he uses the stuff in his lab to create like a, a distraction and like, you know, fire and stuff. Um, yeah. Um, okay. And like fight the beetle, fight, fight the uh, person off. But the person transforms into a beetle before his eyes. Um mm-hmm. And the transformation is described as uh, um, uh, she like transforms into a human-sized beetle and then instantly shrinks down into like a dog-sized beetle. Oh, so she's she's not a, she's not a giant beetle for most of the story then. Exactly. No, no. Uh, I mean, it's like a giant beetle for for a beetle, but not like a human-sized <laughs> beetle. You were just a human-sized beetle, and now you're a dog-sized beetle. That's less impressive now. <laughs> but you know what is impressive is uh, some of these other podcasts on the Greenlit Podcast Network. So let's hear from them, and we'll be right back on What Mad Universe. Hey, guys, you know what's better than video games and beer? Cat videos? Be Arthur? Incorrect! Nothing! The answer is absolutely nothing! All right, all right. You know, actually, I do think you're right. Agreed. We're here at the Dogcast. We podcast about video games and beer. And beer and video games! Available weekly on the Greenlit Podcast Network. 
Pete Arthur. Yes. Hey, Benito. I've been reading the Bible lately, and nobody ever told me how many talking dogs and wizard battles were in this thing. Well, Chris, you know what I always say. If you can understand Star Wars, you can understand the Bible. Apocrypals, part of the Greenlit Podcast Network. Lennon's point of view and we get a lot of the same events repeated from a different point of view and there is like there is new information shed upon it like uh, um, Sidney said he was in love with her all his life but it, it turns out that he's like in love with somebody else every week and that's why she sort of laughed at him um, saying that uh, he was in love with her because you know she knew that she'd be he'd be in love with somebody else next week so that's sort of you know some um but it's right. still a problem with, you know, the same information basically being told to us twice. Yeah. Um, I noticed in the in the segment you read for me uh, there at the beginning, it was uh, they used like slowly and with a strange slowness. Yep. <laughs> like, yep. And, and feet got mentioned multiple times in the same sentence. So yeah. They, they seem to not be afraid to repeat themselves. This book is nothing if not redundant and yeah. repetitive. And <laughs> Okay. <laughs> the Department of Rotundancy. <laughs> exactly. Um, so uh, with the Marjorie Linden stuff, we eventually get to... Uh, um, they're they're going um, to... You know, that there's this um, uh, creature haunting the streets of London who seems to have it out specifically for, for her fiancé, um, trying to get some sort of revenge on him for something that happened in the past. Um, and, uh, they, they, uh, take in, um, uh, Robert Holt, the character from the beginning and sort of nurse him back to health. Um, and, uh, so the, the, uh, the three of them, um, go to, uh, try to find the, the house again of the, uh, uh, beetle lady. And, um, they, uh, go, yeah, they go to the house. Uh, it doesn't look like anybody's there. Um. So the men decide to leave, and Marjorie is sort of is, is, stays behind. Uh, but it turns out that uh, she was actually just sleeping under a bunch of rugs, because that's what foreigners do. Apparently, they don't have beds. Uh, they just sleep on a bunch of bunch of rugs all around them. I don't know. Giant beetles pretending to be foreigners. Yeah. <laughs> well, this I mean, is... to be fair, that is where a beetle would sleep is under the rug. Yeah. But anyway. <laughs> um. Anyway, so that that's where Marjorie's uh, part ends, um, and then the last um, uh, section is, and the longest I believe, uh, was narrated by Augustus Champnell, who's a private detective, who uh, seems to be a character in some of Marsh's other books. So um, uh, I, I imagine he's sort of more of a, a Sherlock Holmes type in in the others, and this is like his brush with the supernatural. Hmm. Um, this was. Um, you know, it was common to, to repeat characters uh, in, in different genres. I don't know. I've seen that a few times. Um, so, uh, yeah, uh, basically Paul Lessingham goes to this private detective um, to try to sort things out. Um, and we learn the, the uh, Lessingham's backstory um, and, you know, sort of learn why all this is going on. Um, he was uh, a young rich kid who decided to skip to not go to college and instead travel the world. He was in Egypt in a, in a place called the Rue de Rabagas. And there was a uh, 
um, a cafe with uh, 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 an enticing songstress who sort of lured him in, and he ended up getting hypnotized and kidnapped and spent uh, a long time uh, witnessing cult stuff going on, seemingly underground, um, with uh, human sacrifices and horrible stuff uh, that uh, seemed to... Um, uh, they seem to worship a, a beetle deity um, that was supposedly, supposedly it's Isis. There's they're supposedly the cult of Isis, though. Hmm. Isis wasn't particularly associated with beetles, at least no more no. than any other Egyptian god. So, right. Uh, Ra yeah, would have made more sense, I think. He's associated with the beetle. There's a lot of Kefir, gods more associated with beetles than, than Isis. Yeah. I don't know. Hmm. So uh, we learn that these are called the, uh, the children of Isis. Um, and, uh, the, um, human sacrifices, uh, it outlines that, um, uh, they go after white Christian women and English women, if, if at all possible. <laughs> so the best I, ones. Yeah. Again, very much going into the, uh, uh, Dracula's issues with, you know, um, mm -hmm. foreigners coming and corrupting our people, but sort of played right. to an extreme and with added dashes of racism. Uh, uh, so, uh, yeah, he, he was sort of witnessing this, this cult stuff happening under a, a hypnotic stupor. And he finally breaks out of it for a second and, and strangles uh, his captor. And she, upon death, transforms into a beetle. And then he manages to escape and eventually comes back to health and decides to go into politics, uh, as you do. <laughs> This um, is the private eye you're talking about? No, no, this is Lessingham's backstory. Oh, okay. He's right, telling okay. it to the private eye. I see. Okay, gotcha. Sorry. So, uh, so uh, yeah, apparently uh, this um, um, this beetle woman is back in town to get either revenge on this woman who was, was strangled to death, or she is this woman. Uh, it's The book is entirely unclear, uh, though it's not really, you know, it's supposed to be ambiguous, I guess, that there's there's all this mystery going on, but it's it's never really 100% cleared up. Hmm. Um. So so yeah. Uh. Basically, to catch up with the Marjorie Linden, uh, she gets hypnotized. Uh, the Beetle has her uh, cut her hair off and uh, walk outside in men's clothing, um, so she won't be noticed. Um. Uh, is taking her on a train and apparently there's uh, forcing her to do uh, vague uh, unbecoming things and on the train uh, the heroes are trying to rush down you know get to the beetle before she does something and it you know how Dracula the, the last act is all about them trying to outrace Dracula <laughs> and the train schedules yeah it's that yes. it's that. <laughs> It's, wow. train, it's train schedules, like literally huh. like uh, chapters and chapters of, of train schedules. Um, <laughs> and and there's That's a train. That's something British people were obsessed with, I guess. They did I, I, trains. They had train spotters for years. And yeah. I guess they were the, the new high tech form of uh, yeah. transportation. So people couldn't get enough of them. Yeah. So uh, and again, it, it ends in sort of an anticlimax with uh, the uh, a train collision. Um, seemingly kills the beetle. Marjorie lives, but she's like traumatized, and it takes years for her to be able to 
to communicate rationally again. Um, uh, so yeah, that, that's that's the basic. So story. wait, you're saying it just a random train crash kills the beetle? Yeah. See, yeah. Not brought on by anything. Just the trains. There's a well, train I guess, wreck. I guess. Uh, I so, mean, the, so you're saying this book is a literal train wreck? <laughs> yeah, it's it, the book's um, its strengths lie in atmosphere. <laughs> let's let's put it mm. that way. Uh, the plot yeah. is is a mess. Like it's not, and it's very repetitive. Um, but it, it it has a great uh, sense of atmosphere, which I'm not really conveying here. A lot of mm. a lot of uh, a sense of uh, dread with. Uh, Right. Uh, lurid descriptions of of uh, the beetle and with um, you know well, uh, a lot of implication of what's going yeah, on without actually the, saying it. Right, the person turning into the beetle—that's a very haunting image. Which I mean, Franz Kafka used it uh, a yep. few decades later. Uh, but what, well, whether he was specifically riffing on this—I mean, if it's as popular as you say, it may have been in the public. You know, knowledge and had, yeah, maybe. had affected him in that way. Would have still um, but, been a thing when, yeah, yeah, exactly, because it was like nineteen. It was right before World War One, I, I think, was Kafka, mm-hmm. um, and uh, or maybe the twenties. I'm sorry, I'm not sure. Uh, but anyway, yeah, not not that much longer. But yeah, it's the the passage you read had a certain uh, had a certain hypnotic to it, and and the way you're describing it is very surreal. And I'm assuming we don't get a lot of explanation. Like, not nope, everything nope. is completely. No, a lot of it's very confusing. Like. We're not entirely, like I said, we're not entirely clear on if this is the same woman of the songs because she was beautiful before. And uh, there's some implication that that sometimes this this person looks slightly younger, so it might have be like leeching vampirically off of people through human sacrifice. But mm. all these are like implied and like not entirely clear. There's, hmm. but I I don't like that. I think works in the book's favor. They're, they're it has a, it's very spooky like uh, right. it leaves a lot up to your imagination and your imagination tends to be scarier than anything one author sort of imposes on you mm-hmm. um, so uh, we've we've gone through the the basic plot but a um, lot, lot of the themes it, pretty easy to pick up that it's it's a lot of it's about the um, uh, anxieties in Victorian England about uh, foreigners right mm. um, as is Dracula yeah, as is Dracula, but this with the uh, added racial elements to it. Though, of right. course, with Dracula, he was, you know, Baltic, so, like, he's right. not, you know, <laughs> Anglo-Saxon. Yeah, yeah. So even, the, you know, once right. you get that racist, you start breaking, you know, white people down into various groups, too. <laughs> right. Um, but it is still just, it like, that's, that's, that's more subtle than overtly, oh, no, that's not a white person. It's like, it, it's more just the foreigners rather than you know the other european because let's let's not pretend europe hasn't like hated every other country yep. <laughs> for hundreds of years right so it's yeah. not uh, that big a stretch so uh yeah and it has the same thing with dracula's like the foreigners are coming here to corrupt their women in this case uh she hypnotizes both men and women with uh, marjorie um into being her her slaves and um subjects them to outrages and they they do things you know, they go outside um, in public wearing nothing but a robe or whatever you, and this is the Victorian era, so this is most undignified. Hmm. Um, in the case of Marjorie, um, she's pre- uh, presented throughout the book as sort of uh, 
I'm not sure she would count as a new woman, uh, quote, new woman, as they call them, you mm-hmm. know, the, the new liberated type. But right. um, she she certainly has um, uh, feelers into that. You know, she she disobeys both her fiance and her father uh, frequently. Um, yeah, I'm, I mean, I'm not sure I'd call her a, a suffragette per se, but it, it seems that she has, um, um, like I said, leanings into that direction. But yeah. she's... Uh, um, and and she um, uh, refuses to to back down when this thing's attacking her her fiance. So she insists on going out into um, into danger and and confronting it to to protect her her loved one. But uh, so all this might you know seem like it's a positive character, positive character traits and stuff. But she is brought low by the plot. I mean, uh, when she's hypnotized. And she's forced to parade around, you know, she's forced to cut her hair and parade around in men's clothing. Um, you know, that that's uh, considered a gross indignity for a woman of her station sort of thing. Um, right. And um, it, it's hard not to read it as sort of the you know, a karmic punishment for out, acting outside of her, you know, uh, station. Maybe, maybe. maybe. Uh, you know, I do feel like when you're dealing with uh, this is one of the problems when you're talking about a horror story and you and you kind of go, you try to build up a character who's you know admirable and you know try to be inclusive and everything. But by by nature of a horror story, horrible things are going to happen to them, right? So yeah. it, it it can kind of it can fight against that tendency sometimes if you're if you're if you're writing it. But I mean, the mere fact that like and, and you keep mentioning things that really sound parallel with Dracula. And I mean, Dracula is notable for also having, you know, a fairly, the, 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 the Mina is, uh, Mina Harker is essentially the main character of Dracula in some ways. Yeah. Um, but so it's, you know, it's the same kind of premise here. It sounds like. Oh yeah. They're, they're very similar. I mean, it's, uh, this came out slightly before Dracula, as I said, cause it was serialized, but they came out. Um, yeah, they, same year still um they yeah. they the authors didn't know each other it's it's just sort of strange huh. it's it's uh, the ideas that were in the air i suppose uh well but you know if the beetle was being serialized beforehand yeah but like the same been. year still yeah like over yeah. over 15 months so like stoker was writing dracula for years so yeah, right, right. Yeah, it's that's that's pretty strange. You you do is it a Doom Patrol X Men scenario? Yeah, or, or, yeah. It was it was there was something in the in the genre literary uh, mindset that was crossing back and forth between the different characters. Uh, but yeah. that's it's just because you it, you're really making it sound a lot like Dracula it in is. a lot of the particulars. Yeah, yeah. Well, well, Paul Lessingham uh, wants to look after the poor, and we do get a sympathetic poor person in uh, in Holt, um, and it, you know it goes into his backstory at the beginning about how he um, um, used to be fairly well off, middle class person, but he, he circumstances um, failed him. But the book also seems to take a, a a dim view of the lower classes. Um, mm. Every time they they show up, they're they're sort of annoying stereotypes and their, their dialogue is written in, you know, dialect. Um, so right. like misspelled and stuff. Yeah. Co- oh, co- me, governor. Yeah. Yeah. But like the words are misspelled to show that they're ignorant sort of thing. Um, like, uh, characters, like a character refers to uh, a policeman as policeman. And 
P-L-E-E-S-M-A-N. Right. And right. The, the narrator of that section, the detective, um, afterwards keeps referring to the policeman as a policeman, sort of, you know, ironically, hmm. uh, in the narration. And it just, it feels... Yeah. It feels a little insulting. Yeah. Especially, yeah. yeah. I mean, yeah, sure. Uh, No no denying that that's a thing. I mean, I'm sure that you probably would have encountered a lot of, you know, people who were not very literate (laughs) in the lower classes in the Victorian era. That's probably true to a a large degree. Yeah, but but still, like, mocking their dialogue is them not actually speaking English, but I I don't know. It's... Um, and there's a there's a character um, we get large narrations from the uh, the landlady of the uh, the house that the beetle owns um, uh, who lives next door and is sort of a busybody who watches everybody and she just uh, goes on to long long speeches and refuses to get to the point and this is in the the last act when we're you know people are kidnapped and we're trying to find out where they are and we just get this long rambling story from this annoying cockney lady. Um, mm. again, like the book's occasion, just sort of fighting against itself sometimes. Right. Like it has this well, that great was pretty, atmosphere. I think but... that's, yeah, I think that's pretty standard in the Victorian era with just the idea of, you know, you, you know, the comical lower class going all the way back to Shakespeare, really. Yeah. Um, you know, you're not going to find a lot of books from that era that were about, you know, the poor people. I, with Dickens. I say that. Yeah. Yeah, Dickens. Dickens is the main... Well, that was the thing, because Dickens was sort of a social reformist who was explicitly writing about that in that from that regard. Um, genre, I guess, is the way to put it. I don't know if you'd see a lot of genre stories that were mm. coming from the perspective of the lower classes in terms of making them the main character. Um, but I could be wrong. We should dig it out. But I can't think of any of the, the big ones. You know, they tend to be about, at the very least, you know, the wealthy or the you know, the nobles or so on. Yeah, that's fair. Um, yeah. So, uh, yeah, as we, uh, as you said, uh, there, I have some sort of review, contemporary reviews. Um, let's see, one, the uh, critic from the Glasgow Herald. Um, the weird horror of this being grows upon the reader. It is difficult, if not impossible, uh, uh, to lay down this book once begun. Mr. Bram Stoker's effort of the imagination was not easy to beat, but Mr. Marsh has, so to speak, out-herited Herod. Um, And the the opinions of the press wrote, uh, Dracula by Mr. Bram Stoker was creepy, but Mr. Marsh goes one, uh, goes one, oh, uh, sorry. (laughs) Goes one, oh, many more than one better. Yeah, yeah, thank you. Sorry, it was awkwardly he's, punctuated. <laughs> he's writing um, it in an overdramatic, sort of precious way. Yeah, so people at the time were obviously noticing the similarity between these two. and mm. um, Yeah, and it's interesting because they talk about it as if people knew Dracula and they were introducing them to the Beatle rather than vice versa. Yeah, I, I, I was... I was, Yeah, I was uh, struck by that too. But, uh, yeah, apparently this sold better. <laughs> Yeah, yeah, it's interesting. And um, I know Dracula wasn't like critically appraised until until the 1960s. Like it was mostly seen as like um, uh, trash at the time. Right. Well, we had that discussion a bit with uh, Jess and it, like the, his his general feeling. Uh, Jess Nevins, uh, when he was on, he he had the general uh, consensus, I think, that 
the genre look, people didn't necessarily look down on genre per se to the degree that it became later like it was you know you could publish if you were people weren't usually both sci-fi and you know naturalistic writers but you could publish a science fiction write, uh, novel and be fairly well regarded uh, i think i think the novel was still seen as a bit of a, a shaky <laughs> um medium i don't think it was necessarily seen in general as a very classy medium uh at, for the for the 19th century i think it's sometime around the early 20th where people started to really see novels as you know as as an actual like legitimate strong art form and and so i think that's uh i think that might explain why you could get away with that to a degree yeah um so i think um comparing this with with dracula i think the major thing that this falls short of with Dracula, because Dracula has a lot of writing issues as well. Um, like it's, um, I, I like the book, but it's got a lot of got a lot of problems. Um, I, I don't think it's it's a, oh, it's hard to say masterpiece, but like maybe it's Stoker's masterpiece, but like right. um, it's it's not Frankenstein it's in terms of literary merit. I don't think. But also, it's it's yeah, it's the it's the thing where it became iconic, not necessarily. Yeah, that it and was that's great. That's I think what what uh, Dracula really has over this book. Like the one, the idea of vampires. It's like a very straightforward. You know, it's about a vampire. That's a thing. A um, a weird ancient Egyptian like Egyptian cult of some other race of people who worship Isis and can turn into beetles somehow. Mm -hmm. Um. It's just not as it's not as punchy uh, a premise, right. you know. Um, yeah, and also, yeah. Dracula as a character is very, um, yeah, iconic. There's lots of imagery associated with him. A lot. He's got a, a lot of personality, and it can be interpreted a lot of different ways. Um, so I, I I can see why uh, perfectly why Dracula ended up taking off in the long run, and this didn't. Mm -hmm. Um. Yeah, uh, the, yeah. I, I mentioned uh, racial issues. There's one thing I forgot. The um, uh, at the beginning when the, the beetle is talk is uh, has hypnotized uh, Holt, he said, "Nice, such white, nice white skin. I would like skin as white as that." Again, it's very um, uh, a Victorian white person's idea that people of color want yeah. uh, themselves view white as superior right and this is yeah, reflected that's... also in them wanting white women specifically to sacrifice yeah yeah a hundred percent that's that's uh it, you know at, at even at the time i think the writers tended to know what they were doing but there was also sort of implicit like well we're the best you know of, we're the best not even as you say not even just white people but like england yeah we're the best and i mean it was the height of the victorian era people could you know at least hold you know walk around holding themselves as lords of creation because if you were in england because you you know you you had the most power in the world essentially yeah uh, so but, uh, but yeah, yeah the just the, the boogeyman of a of a someone coming for our women is a is a has definitely been a trope from that era yeah, yeah. which again Dracula uh, has. um so just to, to summarize on that point it, it's very much the um the anxieties of uh of england at the time um uh, particularly on, on an imperial level, like these are people that um, that England itself was trampling, basically. Mm -hmm. um, you know, this character's not an Arab per se, but like you know, the 
just the general idea of people from the Orient um, were being um, oppressed by, by the English overseas. And, and this sort of, I don't know, I, I feel like on some level they, they knew, they recognized that and understood it and thought, you know, we have to stop these people from coming over or they'll get revenge for what we did to them, you know? Right. That, yeah, well, that's the, that's the subtext of a lot of, uh, like, Orientalist, uh, especially when it's got a horrific sense. It's like it's projecting, you know, their own, uh, you know, the, no, knowing deep down that they're kind of lording it over these other races and they're afraid that they'll get it back together and do to them what we did what we did to them <laughs> do yeah. to us what they did to them and, i think and, uh, yeah i think that's reflected yeah. in you know story and this is uh sort of a vaguely egyptian themed but it's it doesn't involve mummies but i think a lot of the later mummy stories um uh directly reflect that i mean um in the victorian era english people were literally snorting mummy remains as like a cure-all yeah right um, so like it, it makes sense that eventually that would become a horror staple you know these these mummies coming back to you know because we you know raided their tombs and stuff so uh, right you know, right naturally they would want revenge you know yeah exactly um, well the uh the train's coming that's all the time we have for today uh, i've been philip rice uh ambiguously gendered foreign threat and uh with me was adam prosser radical politician our producer was Down on His Luck Clark, Alex Ross. Our theme song was by Jack Ferrick, the man of the songs. Uh, just a reminder, we both have a Patreon, uh, which helps pay for coasting costs and whatnot. And if you subscribe to either of us, you can listen to this podcast early every time, as well as getting bonus material, cut footage, and illustrations and comics, among other things. Uh, just go to Patreon and search for Philip Rice, 1L. He's also on as Spear Hafuck. Or you can go to Adam Prosser, two S's, and I'm as Phantasmic Tales, P-H-A-N-T, Phantasmic Tales. So patreon.com slash spearhalfock or patreon.com slash Phantasmic Tales. Uh, or you could just go to neversleepsnetwork.com slash series slash what-mad-universe, and all the links are right there as well. Uh, you can also follow us on Twitter at WMU Podcast for more updates, or Prankster36 for me, or Spearhalfock A for Philip. So until next time, keep an eye on those train schedules, I guess. <laughs>